This is the European Tour's Life on Tour podcast, presented by Hilton. Hello and welcome to European Tour's Life on Tour podcast, presented by Hilton with me, Andrew Cotter. And today we are at Shishan Golf Club for the WGC HSBC Champions Tournament. And we are here to speak to a very familiar voice, uh, less familiar face, not perhaps a familiar face as well. But anyway, the man is a man who's been striding the fairways today. He is a former European Tour player and winner, turn commentator, Wayne Riley. Wayne, hello, greetings. Hello, Andrew. Hello, everybody. <laughs> you have been... Out on the fairways today. I mean, who have you been following today? Oh, well, they sent me out. Of, uh, I had Adam Scott. Um, I've been with players today that uh, we had Matt Fitzpatrick. He's leading right now. We're filming this halfway through the championship. He's 11 under par. Gee, where's that guy can putt? That Fitzpatrick. He putts for fun. I mean, that is a scary putting stroke he's got. Yeah, but so for those who don't know, I mean, I'm sure everyone listening to this will know your role, but you are... The main on-course commentator for, for Sky Sports uh, Television. So it, just explain, again, your role out there in the corner, how it is different to the role in the box. Um, well, I'm a, they don't let me in the box. Would you let me in the box? I would, I'd be like a caged lion. But they let me out there on the golf course, and uh, well, sight, sound, smells, basically. Giving the yardages, what the player's feeling, how the lie is with the, with the golf ball, how fast the greens are. Everything people want to know that they can't see. Sure, you can see it on television, um, but we, I can get closer to it. I can be inside the ropes. I can get there and tell everyone how gnarly the lie is, how difficult the shot is. So basically bringing everything that you can't see on your screens. Right, we're going to go in-depth in your uh, commentary career uh, later on, but we're going to take you back, all the way back, to Sydney. You grew up in Sydney, mm-hmm. didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, so when did you first... Play golf. I lived next door to a golf course. So when I was seven years of age, I, I, I played football, actually. Um, There's Australian rules football. No, 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 no. That, that's, no. That's not my go at all, the old Australian Really? Rules. No, that might Too be. rough? Well, not really. No, they grease the ball up with Vaseline and no one can grab it. No, it's not my go at all. So it was more soccer, football. And then I started to play golf. And uh, seven years of age, um, I, I used to play probably once a week, nine holes. With my, with my pals and we all went to football and 11 years old they weren't that good at football and I actually was quite a good football player but they left and my mates I wanted to be with my mates so we went to golf what position? centre forward oh. it was my ball it was my ball no one else was having that ball besides me and I'd just stand there and wait for someone to kick it uh, to me and in she'd go I think this is a common theme among fo- golfers when I was playing to golfers and they played football Polter like playing centre forward, as you can imagine. Um, so yeah, there we are. There must be something in the, I don't know, the ego of it. This is it's our ball, it's our ball, and uh, that's why golf's so good. So um, you became pretty good pretty early. Was it again because people, when they take up golf as well, they might drift away from it if they find it frustrating or find it difficult. But did you find it fairly easy and therefore enjoyable no. pretty quickly? No, far from it. My pals were better than than I was because I had a little bit of a head start on me. Um, but I just practiced and persevered. I'm quite a um, determined, you know, sort of a character. And uh, it snowballs. You just practice and practice and practice, and you beat them, and it snowballs into beating bigger players. A lot of people come into golf as well because they're, golf's in their family. So was that was it shown to you by your no, parents? Or no. no, dad. No, my dad uh, had a handyman business, didn't know anything about golf. My mother never played golf whatsoever. Uh, so no, it was just me living next door to a golf course and um, 
having the opportunity to play whenever I wanted to. And what was golf like in Australia at the time? I don't know what it's like now in terms of, because in certain countries it is still a fairly exclusive sport or difficult to get into for some people. What was it like in uh, where you were growing up? It was good. It was always on television. Um, I remember, remember that. But the, the thing that really inspired me was, even back in the day, was, was watching the Open. The Open for me, watching um, the Jewel in the Sun, especially in 77, that Jack Newton, 75, Tom Watson at Canoosti, playing against Jack Newton and uh, Jack Newton losing in the playoff to Tom Watson, his first Open Championship. Me watching those events, the Open, I, th- oh, I went, wow, look at this, and this is just incredible. Then I'd watch our Australian Open and New South Wales Open, Australian events, and I got inspired by watching uh, uh, golf on television. But there have always been good Australians. You mentioned Jack Newton in the 70s and Graham Marshall be another around about yeah. that time. And David Graham, of yeah. course, and Peter Thompson before that. Yes. But there was always someone to, to, I suppose, from an Australian point of view, inspire you. Yes. But you look at that, what you just said, a name there, a US uh, Open and US PGA champion in David Graham. Uh, David Graham is a, um, a lot of people at home, probably the younger generation wouldn't know who he was, but a fantastic um, golfer. He's always quite proper, sort of collar. Oh, he used to, and used to the walk. Yeah, the, the walk. walk. You know, it was like he had a carrot up his backside, was it? It was like off he'd go when he was walking up the valley like this, but just a proper player, a world match play champion, um, a great man and still alive and kicking on wall, but a two-time major champion, a great, great inspiration. So through dedication and diligence and hard work you became good so because you turned pro at 15 is that right yes well I turned pro at 15 I was actually in the pro shop working at 14 and a half um, because my parents said listen Wayne you're not that good at this Um, you want to be a pro but you're not going out to play against Seve Ballesteros now but we want you to do your apprenticeship so you've got something to fall back on um, if you don't make it as a, as a hitter of the golf ball, you can also you can go sell Mars bars and sell B51s in the pro shop and clean people's clubs. You can make a living. And, um, and it was the right thing to do, but I was out when I was 18. It was almost like a jail sentence. B51, B51 XD. God, yeah. they, went, they went a long way. The old Ten fold aces, you know the ones. Yeah, exactly. So I like that kind of parenting, by the way. It's not the kind of parenting that says, you can do anything. The world is your oyster saying, you're not that good at this. Yeah, far from it. Yeah. So, um, so you're, you're pro, but you're not... Are you thinking about possibly having a career as a player, or was that still? No, well, well, yes, I, 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 I was doing. I was going through the motions for three years in the pro shop. Um, I knew I had a very good boss. His name was Ian Brander. Still is. He's still alive, and um, he taught me um, how to play and a work ethic like you can't believe, Andrew. Like I had to be there at eight o'clock to open the shop, but I had to be there at six o'clock in the morning to practice. So I was getting up at five o'clock every day, catching the train to work and uh, having to practice. And then after work, I'd have to stay there until dark and practice, practice. If you want to be a player, son, you need to work hard at it. And I got taught a work ethic like you can't believe. And it, um, it, it worked. I, I had to work so hard on all aspects of my game. Even when it rained, I had to go out there in my wet weather stuff and practice in the wet weather stuff. So the whole thing I was ready for. It's funny, people uh, have short memories and they look at players nowadays and go, oh, look at the work they put in. And they look at the, the, the tour as it was back then or a professional golf back then and think, ah, they were wonderful people enjoying life and just turning up and playing golf. But there were grafters. Everyone who was talented was still a, a bit of a grafter as well. You've got to work hard at anything you do. 
you know, in broadcasting, you've got to work hard at that as well. It's the same as in sport. And uh, if you want to be a good sports person, you've got to sort of graft. So what was the progression for you then? You know, you were, as you say, selling, selling sweets in the pro mm. shop, but working away at your game. So how quickly did you start to make progress? Um, from 15, uh, when I was 16, I was scratch. So I started at four handicap at 15 and then a scratch at 16. So um, then 17 years of age, I was playing in Monday assistant pro matches. So when I was 17, I played 11 of them and won seven. Um, and then they give you a national invite. I was one of four to get a national invite, which means you can play in fully pro events and be in, invited to play as an assistant pro. And it just progressed, and then I was winning big pro-ams. And, um, and then I went on to um, playing on the, on the main tour in Australia. But it's interesting, though, because a friend of mine has this mantra, that, and he's always seeing these talented, phenomenal children. Oh, this, this person's going to be the next big thing. And he says, well... You don't have to be the best no. in the world when you're 30, 12, 13, 14, 15. Exactly. You can yeah. make, in fact, the most important years are perhaps between 16, 17 and, and 20. Yeah, natural. Look, we've got some guys that are coming out here now at 24 years of age and they're bloom, blooming quite late. And um, you look at Ryan Fox. I mean, he's, he's blooming late. You know, even though he's not winning anything, but but he's blooming late. He's he's making a lot of money and making inroads into the game. Yeah, you don't have to be uh, kids. You don't have to be great when you're 14. You don't have to be great when you're 18. Just persevere with it and keep working at it, and you wear them down. Yeah. So who were your? We talked about the people that inspired you when you were a youngster, but then as you were starting to emerge as a, a young professional, who were your contemporaries? Would you be? So you'd be slightly younger than. Than Greg Norman. Yep. Uh, Ian Baker Finch was already getting out. No, he's, he's only two. I, I, I started playing junior golf, um, junior pro ams with Ian, so uh, Wayne Grady, those guys. But um, no, I'm very much Nicholas. Uh, when I was a kid, like, like looked up to him when I was like 12 year old, he was he was like the golden bear, and I'm, I'm giving it, wow, look, that's Jack Nicholas. Then Seve came along, and um, I had a picture of Seve up on my wall. Uh, he, he just inspired me so much. The swashbuckling, charismatic. He had the whole thing. He was a dashing Spaniard. Don't get me wrong, I didn't fancy him or anything like that. But he just I fancied the way he played golf. And he was awesome. 79 at Lytham. The, all this malarkey, I, I was just in awe. Yeah. And um, do you remember that stuff? I do remember oh, that right. stuff. I was quite young, but uh, I feel I should describe for the podcast listeners that you're sort of doing the follow through of, oh, yeah. uh, of Seve by Stairs at 79, where he's. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm now doing the action without yeah. describing it as well. So this is terrible podcast stuff. But anyway, so who were the. When you're playing in Australia at the time, though, uh, as I mentioned, you mentioned Wayne Grady and Greg Norman and Ian Baker, perhaps just a little bit older than you, but who were your contemporaries that you were playing with at the time? Were there anyone who, who, who went on to make it as well? Oh, God. yeah, yeah. Well, you. Grady and Baker Finch, they won majors. We were playing pro-ams. You know, we were travel around, uh, traveling around in a bus. Um, I was traveling around with those guys when we were young. You know, I was like 18. They, they were like 20, a couple of years older. But we were all looking on, uh, uh, you know, up to Greg Norman. You know, Greg Norman's six years older. So he was kind of his own era, Greg. Um, you had Graham Marsh. He was out there with Terry Gales and these sort of guys. Um, Brian Joneses and these guys, they were sort of that age. Jack Newton, before his accident, was um, a big inspiration. So there, there were so many. We, we, we had a dynamic time in the world of golf for, for a long time. A Roger Davis, these kind of players. 
were, 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 were great, great to watch. And um, I don't know what's really happened to our, to our golf, to be perfectly honest. It's gone a little quiet. Uh, there are a few good ones, but you're right. You're still relying on the Adam Scotts, etc. But anyway, so you then took that path. You talk about Greg Norman. Greg Norman took that path, a well-trodden path for Australian golfers at the time, to go to Europe and play. So is it 84 Q school you went to? I went to 84. I actually came over here in 1983 and I tried to qualify for the Jersey Open at Fox Hills Golf Club. So when you said come over here, I thought you came to China. No, 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 no. You know what I mean? Came over to the European Tour and, and I went to qualify and I didn't really have any money. I had like 800 quid and I went to Fox Hills on the Monday and missed so I arrived on the Sunday, had a practice round uh, on Sunday afternoon, Monday, and missed. And I thought, I've missed qualifying. I haven't got any more money. So that Sunday, that, that Monday night, I got a cab up to Heathrow and I flew home again. So I was here for one day yeah. and went back to Australia. That was 83. So 84, I came back again, qualified for the Open Championship, Seve's year, 1984, shot 60, 66, 66, 66. Um, at the qualifying, won the qualifying against Payne Stewart, played the Open Championship. Where was that qualifying? Ladybank. Ah, oh, Ladybank. Yeah. Ladybank. And, and um, so I, I, I played in the Open. And I was unlucky. I made the cut, the second round cut. But that was the last year of the third, the first, the last year of the two round cuts. It, it was a three round cut then. Yeah, people don't remember these. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was a bit, you know, I wasn't happy that there was a three round cut. So I missed it, but I still got paid. And um, there was nothing else for me to play and then, so I went home after that Open, the first Open, and um, 84, and I went back to Australia, and I played in a Pro-Am series, which the next Pro-Am I played over 36 holes, I won by 13. So I was, I was quite, I was going quite well, and um, I was kicking along. So um, then it all started, really. Okay, so can you explain a little bit about what the European tour was, was like in the, in the 80s and the lifestyle as well as you're sort of trying to make your way in the game as well because people always talk through sort of rose-tinted spectacles and nostalgia but there was great fun uh, so I'm sure it was difficult but there were pretty good times out there as well. Uh, yeah, two, two good times. We, we had good times, yes. It, it was, um, you know, we, it was different. It was different. We weren't playing for a lot of money. Uh, you know, in 1985, well, I got it in 84, my card. 1985, I remember about my fourth tournament. I ran third at the Car, car Care International at Leeds at Moortown. And I ran third and I won 3,000 quid. I mean, I'm like, you know, well, 3,000, even then it wasn't a lot of money. And I'm kind of going, well, this will last me a couple, a couple more weeks. And you just, you'd play week to week. That's what it was. It wasn't a get richer. So if you miss a cut, you were going to have a, a, a good time, and there, was, there wasn't a shortage of people to have a good time with. It was just the way it was. You know, even the great players you'd have good times with, the great players um, would, would, would go out and have a decent time. It's just, uh, it's just it's a bigger business now. And um, back then it was big business. We thought it was big business, but we were minnows in the game, really. Did you believe that you could compete at the top level? Did you, did you always feel... When you talk about the fact that you didn't have an outstanding talent as a youngster and you were a grafter, did you always feel that as a player, that you were a, a good player, or did you believe you could compete in majors? Oh, I don't know. Back then, we, we only had a chance really to, to compete in one major, and that's the Open. It, it, it was very difficult to get in the Masters. You had to finish like in the top five in the order in Europe. 
and you're playing against Woozy, you're playing against Sebi, you're playing against Lyle, you're playing against Falder, you're playing against all these guys, and you've got to beat those guys to get into the Masters. It, it was a totally different deal. And um, no, not really. You were hoping, Andrew, you were hoping that you had a week out and you'd win something like that. But it was very difficult to get in these events. And, um, you know, it's, it's uh, I can't sort of... It's You look back and you'd, you'd, you'd dream, you'd, you'd basically dream that you could play in these events, let alone win them. That was a different story. I mean, one of your greatest wins, I don't know, you may be telling me, what was your greatest win? wasn't in the European Tour, but was back in Australia, the, the Australian Open in 91. Mm-hmm. And you look at the names who have won that trophy, and that's a... I mean, the Australian Open is still, and always has been, a big deal, and Nicholas and you know, Palmer and Player and whoever it might be have won that. So to win that, was that the greatest thrill in your... Um, yes, yes, yes. To win that, um, to win the Australian Open, the way I did a bird in the last three holes, and, you know, the three of the major champions uh, of that year there, because we hold that in December. Yes, it was a big event back then. It was, it was, I always dreamed of winning my own national open. Everyone does. It's their, everyone, you know, their own national open is the fifth major. Uh, What's happened with the Australian Open? I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's as big as it once was. As I say, there were three major champions when I won that tournament. It was hard to win. It was interesting hearing sorry, Rory McIlroy talking recently, and I, would, uh, I wrote about this as well, that it would be great if, similar to tennis, we're diverging off a slight tangent no, here, no. that the Australian Open could become something, a major in the winter for the men's game, because... At the moment, they're so condensed into that tight window in the in the summer, and three of them in the United States. Can you ever see the Australian Open regaining some real prominence? Yes, I can. Um, I don't know if people, you know, in power down there will like like me to say that um, I don't think it's going in the right direction. The Australian Open. I don't think there's enough prize money. A lot of people say, well, there's not a there's not a lot of money in Australia for golf. Come on. You know, Australia's got plenty of money. We're a wealthy country. You know, whether it be Sydney or Melbourne or some other city, someone's got money to, to, to put the money into it, whether it be on the... I've always said that it should be on a major. I, I think they had the opportunity back in the day when Nicholas and um, Palmer and Player were winning it, often. I think they had a chance then. But for it to be a WGC or a tournament on the PGA Tour or on the European Tour... I think it belongs on the European tour, I think. Um, and I know Keith Pelly and these people would like it to be on the European tour, but I think it should be, and I think one day it will be, and the people who are in charge right now should take note and do something about it. Yeah. You heard it here first. There we are. So, actually, let's go forward to 1995 then, and your first bona fide win on the European tour, which shows at uh, Carnoustie and the Scottish Open at the time. So uh, just uh, give us your feelings there. And, because that had been a long time on tour without a, a win on the European tour. So how did it feel to take the Scottish Open? Oh, that was very big. You know, like I played with Monty on, on, th- on um, Saturday. Um, or back then, we used to finish on Saturday, so I played with him on Friday. Um, so he didn't wear his saltire jersey on the... No, I'm not sure. I don't really remember... Um, but Sunday I played with Faldo, so to go head to head with those guys. But it was one of those week around uh, weeks around the golf course that totally, I was totally inspired uh, about uh, by the golf course. As soon as I got there, I just went, "Wow, look at this place! It's just one of the best links golf courses I've ever seen." 
And I was inspired as soon as I got there. No one was going to beat me that week. I don't care who you, who you were. I mean, um, uh, even Tiger Woods there, I, I blew him away. But he was only, it was an 11-year-old amateur. But he just, he, he won everything. But he, he, he was there, he was young. Gordon Sherry as well. Yeah, Gordon Sherry, I think he ran fourth. Fourth, yeah. But, but uh, nice man. I don't know what happened to Gordon. I think he went into management or something. Yeah, he is, he's in management. There you go. Good on him. Um, but... Fal though it was it was an unbelievable field as the tournament before the Open Championship always is, and um, to win that was was such a blast. I've been very lucky. And you mentioned the Australian Open, you mentioned the Scottish Open. I've been very lucky to win two championships there on iconic venues. You know, you can go and win the Scottish Open, or you can win the Australian Open on ordinary golf courses, which they haven't got ordinary golf courses. They're such big, illustrious events, great events. They're always going to be on nice places. But to win at Royal Melbourne and to win at Canoosti is, is pretty cool. In 95, 96, 97, they were very good years for you. I mean, you represented Australia in the, in the Dunhill Cup as well and the, and the World Cup. That must have meant a great deal as well. Yeah, Dunhill Cup especially, Andrea. The Dunhill Cup was, um, was big then. It was that a great was, event, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Around St Andrews, it was, it was a proper event. Um, I played with uh, Stephen Elkington and uh, Greg Norman in that, in, in that. So to be in a team with Steve Elkington, a major champion, and Greg Norman, a major champion, and there was me, and I'm sort of like, you know, I'm in this, so I've, I've, done, I've earned this, so I'm, I'm playing in, 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 in the Dunhill Cup. It was very, very special, especially growing up watching the Dunhill Cup because it was always, and it was always grey in Scotland. I thought, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. I'd like to go there and do that. And I did, and I wore the green. And how do you get on with Greg Norman, just at mention of him there? Because he's such an iconic figure in the game. But I, I think I remember you interviewing him and he's going, how are you, Shark? Because you just, you're just on good terms with him. You've always been good friends with Greg Norman. Greg, I haven't seen Greg for a while now. Obviously, he's very busy and I, I, I'm doing a, a lot of um, commentary all around the place. But yeah, Greg's been very, very good to me. He, 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 I used to play practice rounds with Greg and uh, he used to give me a lift on his plane very kindly. I, I went fishing with him to his house in America and um, he was great. He was the Pied Piper of Australian golf and um, I was lucky enough to call him a friend and still am. And this is perhaps nostalgia as well, though, as you look back at, you've talked about seven, you look at Greg Norman because you knew when you watched Greg Norman it was going to be an adventurous ride and he looked great and he might play brilliant golf and then he might just yeah. disappear off into the ether but it was it was always exciting to watch him both of them greg norman Seve, you mentioned those two guys you could sit in the locker room and the ball the, the, the door behind you could slam and those two guys you could smell them you could just they reeked of charisma all right you just knew it was them, yeah. and it was um, they had something very different, as Nicholas, you know, did, and um, Watson. These great players seem to have uh, charisma, and uh, and they all have great names as well. They're, they're great. Would you would you have given yourself a different name? Would you? If you could have chosen it. Oh, no, 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 not really. How do you well, get the name? Wayne Riley's cool. But but radar is. My parents for it, but. People people know you as. As radar, I remember Mike Reed, great American player who nearly won the USPJ and the Masters yeah. in '89. But he was radar because he was straight. But that's, that's right. not where. No. Go on, explain. No, I'm very um, well. Mash, yeah. radar, O'Reilly, little fat guy with glasses and funny looking hat. But um, second name Riley, radar O'Reilly, and um, it was it started back in Australia. I was down playing on the Murray region of Australia, nice area, great golf courses down there. 
place called Cobram Baruga, and I was sitting one night around a campfire where we were all staying in a caravan park, basically renting caravans, and these kids started to pick on me, really. And um, they said, oh, you're radar, you're radar, radar, Riley. I said, oh, yeah, good on you, okay. And it just stuck. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't mind it. The first three months of it, I thought, oh, I'm not liking this, really. But then, as I saw these guys and started to kick their butts at golf, and they, I could see they were a bit embarrassed. I said, well, thanks very much for naming me that, big yeah. fella. Exactly. Well, Redos go, quite away a... and, go away and hit some more balls because you can't play on there. That's quite a cool name, actually, Redos. Yeah, it's all right. Think, yeah. It's fine. yeah, it's fine. So there we are. So, I've uh, been called worse. Exactly. They could have called you much worse and that might have stuck. So 96, you won in Portugal. Mm-hmm. And um, again, what were your, did you have different ambitions then because you won in 95, 96? Were you trying to set your sights slightly differently and thinking you could go on and do, do more? No, I just won the Portuguese. At that time, I was playing very well and I was so dedicated to the game. Um, and, and, and I won in Portugal. I won very easily. I mean, I remember going up about the 27th hole there and I was seven in front, which is quite weird. You don't see that very often. And, and I, was, I was playing unbelievable golf. But to go on to win that, and uh, it was great. And, you know, I won four national opens. But the thing is, I could have done so much better. And I look back... And I think that was the last tournament I won. And it's like, you know, I, I kind of like, and I, I stopped playing in around 2002. How Only old were you then, 2002? 40. I stopped very early. And, um, well, why, why was that? Well, I, I got to 40 because I started so young. You're talking 15 years of age. I found a, uh, there was a lot of burnout. I, I, I didn't get excited to get up in the morning and go and practice as much. And then the young guys are coming and, you know, they're, they're grinding on the range like you once did. And, I, and they start to beat you. Oh, so I kind of just went, no, nah, well, it's time to do something else. And uh, that's, that's what happened. It's a little disappointing now sitting here with you, looking back on it. But you, you also look at it and you go, well, I did better than most. And, you know, it's just the way it was. It's just something that happened. Yeah, so you don't look back with regrets thinking, no, no, no. I could have got more out of my game. Oh, I certainly know I could have, but um, I would have had to um, done the whole thing totally differently. You know, it was, um, you know, pubs probably should have locked at a different time, probably, and uh, restaurants, and, and there's marriage, and there's divorce. And there's <laughs> life. Chilly life. There you go. Life gets in the way. Yes. Hi, I'm Jamie Donaldson, European Tour player and proud Hilton Golf Ambassador. Are you a Hilton Honours member? No? You're missing the chance for you and your family to enjoy better travel, promotions, unique experience and more. Sign up to Hilton Honours today. You're listening to the Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. So how was the transition then from, did you know what you, did you have any idea what you thought you might want to do when you stopped playing? How was the transition into the media? Um, that, was, that was a very interesting time, like, because I went back to Australia and um, as soon as I went back there, I, I bought a golf course. I bought a nine-hole par three golf course. As you do. Mm. And I ran that for 18 months. I did the whole lot. I might have had a greenkeeper, but I helped and did all that. And that was successful. And then... Uh, um, Channel 7 in Australia came and knocking and they said, will you come and do some, some commentary? And by, when, they, when they did that, I, I, I went, you've got the wrong guy here. Are you sure you got, it's Wayne Riley, not Wayne Grady or someone like that. They said, no, we want you to do on-course commentary. 
I said, okay. So off I went. And the first day I, I went up the first tail, hole at Huntingdale in the Australian Masters. And Lindsay Stephen and Wayne Smith were standing behind me, going up the first hole. And I went, what are you two doing here? They said, we're out here to learn off you. I went, this is the first hole. So as soon as I looked at them, I went, they've been sent out here in case I screw up here so they can take over. So that made me so determined to succeed at it. And then I just, off I went and I just, I didn't find it difficult. And you were always on course. Always. Were you given, what what advice were you given or were you just said, be be yourself within certain parameters, just go there? No advice whatsoever. It's the best way. They just absolutely strapped me into my stuff and gave me a mic, go out there and do your stuff. I said, well, I thought to myself, well, what stuff? And because I don't really know what I'm doing. There's your switch, there's on and there's off. Speak when I tell you. And what the people that don't know about on course commentary, I hear a few voices in my ear. You hear a producer, but you also hear a guy that says, fade radars, mic up. That's basically what happens. Um, and it's my turn to speak. As soon as the commentators in the box stop talking, which sometimes is very difficult to get those guys to stop talking. But, um, and then we go, and you shut up once you're done. So once I got it, once I got what it was all about, you know, it was just talking about golf, and, and I found that easy. Now, having, having done both on course and in the box myself, I know that on the course it's quite difficult to, as you said, the guys in the box, they, they like to hold things and control things. So it's difficult to make a, not make a name for yourself, but actually get your character out there because you've got tiny little windows to, to speak in. But you were quite easy about getting a bit of character into the role. Yeah, I like to bring myself to it. You know, it's not, I don't try to go out there and put it on you. You know, it's golf. Let's, let's, let's all just get with the program here. It's a game of golf. It's not life or death. No one's dying. The worst, worst things that are happening in the world. And, and let's have some fun with it. Let, let's enjoy ourselves. Sure, when I first started, um, especially with Sky and um, over here, you, you, you kind of think, well, a lot of people went, whoa. You know, uh, we, we haven't seen this. And they said that to me. I said, well, this is the way I do it. This is the way it is. I'm not going to change and try to be someone drab because you're telling me to be drab. I'm not going to be drab. So um, I brought myself to it, and it seems to be going all right. And how did the move to Sky happen, and when, when did that happen? Well, actually, you know, because I'd worked uh, two seasons with Channel 7 down in Australia, I rang Richard Boxall, who works for, for Sky. And... Um, he said, I said, listen, you know, uh, how did you go about Sky? And um, he says, actually, a guy's just left. And I said, well, great. So give me the number of the guy. So I rang the, the guy in up and uh, he said, yes, we've actually been, mon-, he actually said, we've been monitoring you um, with Channel 7. Do you want to come over for one week and do the Spanish Open? So I did that down at um, the south of Spain. And... Uh, I went home after that first week and then as soon as I landed in Sydney on the Tuesday morning from flying out of Heathrow, he rang up and said, mate, you, you want to come back you know, straight away? We've got eight events for you. So um, it just took off. Even that year, I did the Ryder Cup for radio. and So it, straight away, I got a spring in my step, a boost, an injection of confidence that I could do it and people were starting to take notice of it, especially the hierarchy. 
What do you think your role is to do? What do you think if you're trying to do one thing out there on the course, what are you trying to do? I'm trying to bring um, what they, the punters at home, the people at home can't see. I'm trying to explain what people are trying to do. I'm trying to bring sight, sounds and smells. I'm trying to bring everything that you can't see on your screen and how he's trying to play the shot, why he's trying to play the shot, if it's the wrong kind of shot, if it's the right kind of shot, the risk factor, uh, the rewards, everything that um, you can't really see. And um, that's that's what I feel it's all about. Look, I don't want to hear some guy telling me it's an uphill part and it's downhill part. And you got, there's more to it than that. You know, we want to bring we want to bring everything to it that um, these people can't feel. Sitting in their lounge chairs at home, we want them to feel what we're feeling here in China. And. Golf is, sport is, sports broadcasting is, entertainment yes. after all. 1,000%. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Are there any broadcasters, I mean, you do your own thing, but are there any other broadcasters that you quite like listening to or quite when you're watching sport quite like listening to? I like you. <laughs> you I was know. watching you, I was listening to you the other day at the Athletics and I was just off camera, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I was talking about how does he get, how does Andrew Cotter get these names right when they're running the 400 and you're getting all this now that look that is a discipline you know that you work hard to do that and that's i work hard to do it we both work hard to do that stuff but i couldn't do what you're doing like richie benno oh, yeah. look we, we listen to you know golf peter alice henry longhurst i mean henry longhurst with 71 1979 well this is a game that i'm not familiar with or something like that it was like bizarre it's just a nice line it's observation it's it's just the whole lot it's there's so many um broadcasters ray warren who does rugby league back in australia there are so many broadcasters that that i admire and you know as soon as you think in broadcasting you know everything it's over Mm. you know you can keep on learning you know that yeah do you have fun out there as well not on the course i'm talking about but when you're actually traveling the world because people think I don't think people think it can be a, a glamorous lifestyle, and it's not really. It's it's a fun job, but there's a lot of travel involved, a lot of hotels, so you've got a good company around you as well. You certainly do, but I'm getting to an age now. I've just turned 57, just turned, and um, sure, when I started at around 44, uh, 43, I, I forget which one, but yeah, we used to have a good time. You go to nice restaurants, you sit there, and uh, but that's totally changed now. I mean, I, I, I'm. Sure, I might go out one or two nights, but that's even changing. I'm, I'm more of a homebody now. Um, I sit in my hotel room, a lot of room service. I might even go out and um, ha- eat by myself because we're hearing so many voices in our ears and, and, and that, and I enjoy it. But I still, I look at the time when I'm going to retire, but I will really be upset when I do because I, I seriously love what I do. Yeah. Going out there, once I've got my hat on and my mic, I'm off and I'm in my own world out there and I love it. The hat, at mention mm. of it, because you're sitting here, he is sitting here, ladies and gentlemen, wearing the hat. Or is it, is it a constantly updated hat? Is it the same hat that you've always worn or do you get a new one? No, I get a new one. This is, a, this, is um, this year. Um, my mum gives me the hats. My mum buys me my hats. She first said, listen, you're going to be out in the sun all the time. You've got to wear a hat. So um, are these bush tucker hats. What, what, yeah. how, what would you call them in Australia? These it's just a hat. It's a this it's one's just a hat. Hat. <laughs> it's just but a hat. It's, it's, it's a company called a Cobra in Australia, and they're just they're, they're rabbit skin. They're great hats. They're the best hats. They really are. And um, it's 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 just been great. It's worked well. 
um, because I, I wore right at the start. People looked at you know mates for commentary, friends. They went, "What's that? What are you doing with that?" I tell you what, I'm not going out there in the sun of Dubai or America, which I do a lot, twelve or thirteen tournaments there a year, and I'm not going to come back looking red like a bloody lobster, you know. So this big brimmed hat. Been great. Look at me. I'm looking 26. <laughs> there is nobody more sensible about uh, sun conditions than Australia. Yes. They slip, know it. slop, slap, slap it on. Yeah, it's a good hat. Not a good hat for the rabbit, but a good hat. And it is a bit of a trademark as well, which doesn't do any. It's turned into that. Yes. It doesn't do any harm. So, um, say, you know, you have good times playing golf, and you can never quite replicate that. But in commentary, you can have big moments and enjoy the experience as well. Are there any tournaments in the past, any commentaries that you've you've done, any moments that you've really enjoyed as a as a commentator that stand out? Um, oh, there's so many. There are so so many. Um, look, there's one like this year. I've been to Ryder Cups. I've been like as an Australian. I don't know if I'm I'm the only Australian to do Ryder Cups. I've done six of them. Now that's an honour to do that as an Australian. But this year, Shane Lowry, Portrush, that was unreal. I mean, like, coming the Saturday last, oh, I had a tear coming down, down, my, down my face. It was, even Roger Maltby, a good friend of mine who works in the States, that we work, trudge the fairways together, he said to me, he said, Radar, this is, um, this is something I've never seen before. This is pretty special. And if Roger says that, who's been out there a hundred years, it was special. They were singing, they were swinging off the chandeliers. It was just meant to be. That sticks in my mind. Um, the Ryder Cup at um, Celtic Manor, when they're all standing up there, when McDowell hold it on 16, they're all standing up on the hill on the left-hand side of 16 in mud. They were standing in Vindaloo up there. And when that putt went in, the noise through the valleys, the valleys of Wales. Yeah, there's just so many. You, you know what it's like. It's just there have been so many moments where you've just gone, wow, that, that is just... It, I am very lucky to be in the position I'm in to, to witness these things. It is a very privileged position, yep. isn't it? You it never is. forget that. It's sort of all the spectators are craning their necks to see you and that you are there front and centre standing next to Tiger. Woods. There are a lot of people who want to do our jobs and we are the chosen ones to do it. There's got to be a bit of luck there. Yeah, sure, we can do it. Yeah. There's got to be a bit of luck there. Large elements of luck for all yeah. of us. But anyway, so I, I mentioned Tiger Woods. So when you're with the, the players and they're, they're in their zone and you have to accept that you're no longer a player, you're, you're there to do a very different job, but you can have a word or two with them sometimes in the lighter moments? Yes, but I've always, I've never been any different for the 14 years I've been doing it. I wait for them. I don't get it. I've seen commentators go and stand up in the street and t- start talking to them. I cringe. I say, listen, idiot, get off the tee, go away. They don't want to talk to you. They're only being polite, trying to talk to you. Don't go near them. They will come to you and talk to you when they feel as though they want to whinge and whine or ask you about something. And, what, and what the cut line might be. Just talk about whatever. And they just want to get away. And I get a lot of them coming to me. And sure, I'll, I'll have a chat with them then. But look, I'm not going to go into their office. You don't go into the mayor's office and start chatting to the mayor, do you? No, I, I wait for them to come to me, and rightly so. So who are the players you admire most? Out the here? Cur- of the current crowd, yeah, playing around just now. How's Tiger going? Yeah. Oh, this guy is... A, yeah. Does that stagger you? Is it staggers everyone yes. else? Just what you're well, I was, I was the first, like, three years ago, asked it so many 
things and so many times is Tiger coming back. I'd, I'd go, well, I can't see it. I can't see this guy's have four back surgeries, six knees and whatever it is. Um, you know, he's had his troubles. We've all had our troubles, but he, he, and then he comes back and you look like, whoa. And then he started to hit it right and he was losing height when he came back. The whole swing was wrong. And then it started to get better. And then I was walking the 18th fellow, walked the whole um, win at, at um, East Lake. And I remember at the 16th green, um, he came up and he, he was sweating, he was hot. Yeah, he says, well, it's quite hot, isn't it? I said, yeah, it's quite hot. And he looked a little nervous, but he got it done. And why wouldn't you be nervous? And then the scenes down the 18th, Tiger Woods. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he's one that's just, um, he's a standout Tiger Woods now. But you look at all these young players, it's, uh, they're, they're, they're for Rory McIlroy. What, what is, he's just unreal as well. Do you have a player that you would, as you're going rounds, secretly be rooting for a little bit? Well, I mean, we've all got our favourites, players that are nice players, or are you just looking at it so objectively yeah. that they're just names and shots and... Look, I'm happy for everyone who wins, but I'll, I'll, I'll honestly, honestly say, I don't care who wins. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, you might sit back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and go, no, that's not true. You think an Australian, you want him to win? No, no. Whoever wins deserves to win. And you've watched him all day on Sunday, if I'm with the group that wins. And whoever wins deserves to win. And I don't get um, upbeat. I, I just shake my head and go, mate, well done, and uh, off I go, walk back to the compound and hang my hat up. What about the the state of the game? Because, again, we talk about whether it was Seve or Norman, whoever it might be, characters of the past, or um, impressive players with great auras in the past. Do you see today's crop as being as, I don't know if engaging is the word, but uh, can they be as entertaining as... Or are we looking back again through those rose-tinted glasses to see players perhaps, you know, there may have been as many boring players back then as there are now? No, it's a very good question. Um, look, no, I, I, I think that um, Tiger has it. Phil has it. These guys have it. Rory has it. I think a Justin Thomas, Thomas has it. But Ricky has it. But there are so many really great players now that haven't got the pizzazz that players of the past had. Even, look, everyone looks at Faldo. And, you know, I find him a great commentator. It, but back in the day, people thought that he was a little boring. He was far from it. He had a charisma. He just was so tunnel visioned and so focused on what he was doing. Um, you know, people went, oh, he's, he's dull. He's not dull. You're just sick and sick of him whipping you every week. He was just one of those players. And, um, you know, to win six majors. And But, look, the charisma isn't, isn't there now. But, look, they will come along. We will get... Look at Stenson. Yeah. He's got it. The, we've got them, but, geez, we've got a lot of boring buggers as well. <laughs> <laughs> what about the equipment the boring buggers are playing with as well? Because the game has changed since you stopped playing, has changed immeasurably. It's a game played way up there in the air now and a long, long way down the fairway. So do you think that's for the better, for the worse? 
It makes golf courses obsolete, some of them, um, but yeah, I like it all. I think it's all great. I like the golf ball flying off and, uh, you know, these drivers with the trampoline effect. And um, look, it's great to watch. They're shooting 20 under par. And, um, so you quite like the boomers game rather than I, I like a bit it. of craft, a bit of shaping the ball? I like it, but I'll tell you, we're at a golf course here this week that's long and they're saying it's a driver's golf course. But what they've done, they've pinched the fairways in. That's what we have to do in the game now, especially in the States. In Europe, we've got it down pat. That's, the fairways aren't as wide. Especially when we go to Lynx Golf and we go to Holland and we go to Switzerland, the fairways are pinched in. You can't just drill it down there 320 because you're going to find yourself in the rough where the fairways over in the States are so wide. I think we've got to learn to narrow the fairways a little bit and uh, I think it'll solve a lot of problems. Yeah. Listen, one other thing you do is you do occasionally do the interviews as well at the end of rounds. Quite often you do them. So are there players you look forward to interviewing and players you don't necessarily? Because I remember players like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be slightly hard work to interview this player. Well, I, I, I've done a lot of interviews and, and um, it, no, it doesn't bother me who I interview. Uh, the, the only one was here in the HSBC about four years ago, uh, three or four years ago, Matsuyama one, and his translator was there. And I was, yeah, I wouldn't let the translator talk. So basically, the whole interview was me asking a question and Matsuyama answering in Japanese. So it didn't go down too well. So some people understood the questions entirely, well, some people yeah. understood the answers our, entirely. Our presenter back in the UK, David Livingston, bless him, one of the greatest. Um, presenters of all time he's just finished the whole show with well we didn't know the radar could speak Japanese so it was uh, it was an interesting time and uh, which event do you look forward to going to uh, most of all because some, some events I mean and again we're a bit mercenary about it sometimes we like it because we know it's a nice hotel or it's going to be a good week for that reason but is there one week that you really look forward to which one when I get my uh, schedule which is next week which one do I look is on there first yeah the Irish really yeah Okay. No matter yeah, where it is in Ireland, it's... I couldn't care less. We could do it. We could do it around Dublin Airport. I couldn't care less. Okay. They, they, they're all mad, and I, I fit right in. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're considered actually one of the yeah. one of the dull I, ones I, I think it's the greatest event, and the people, the the glimmer in their eyes that when they see the superstars of the game in their Rolex event championship, the Irish Open. Um, the you know Dubai duty free Irish Open, um, you, you just you've got to love them. They just love it. Do you feel you're back among your own folk in Ireland? I, I don't know, but I, I just feel when I go to somewhere. Look, I love all events. I, I get asked that question all the time. But I, I, where do you love going to? And I just look straight away, and I, I just go, yeah, well there it is. It, it's Ireland. Yeah. So what are your ambitions now for the next five or ten years or something? Just to try and keep on doing the job and enjoying the job or anything in particular that you have set as a, as a goal going forward? Um, not really. Keep on doing, just keep on getting better um, at, at what I do. I mean, who knows who's going to have golf and, and, and um, you know, Sky has been great. But, um, you know, the, the, you've got to also understand that there's going to be younger guys and, and people who, you know, aspire to take your job. You've got to keep them, those people at bay. You've got to sort of give them a kick in the ribs and say, okay, come and get it. What do you got? But, um, you know, that's going to happen one day. You're not going to be, you know, here forever, you know. But um, 
you know, a few more years would be nice, man. It's a ruthless business. Right, sure so is. you have, what, four children? A golfer? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, no, 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 no golfers. Uh, Joe, my um, son there, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's 18. He's in the... Um, do, 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 do. Dude, you know that music? That no. Oh, it's like... I have no idea what that was. That was like acid jazz. Like, yeah, he's, yeah, well, there you go. But uh, yeah, he, I play golf with him. But he's a solid 19 handicapper, and uh, I'm happy with that, yeah. Yeah, no, he's... Uh, like, I take him back sweaters and all that sort of stuff. Dad, I'm not going to wear that. I'm not going to wear that well, golf stuff, a, Dad. A nice bit of knitwear to his next oh, house. No, not session. into it. No, no, like, he hasn't got a hoodie on it, man. He's not wearing it. No, I know I'm traveling around the world a lot, but you have a fear of flying. Is that a real fear or just... Yeah, it was um, back in the day when I was playing. Horrendous. It was, it was diabolical um, flying around the world. But uh, now I'm... 57, you know, whatever happens to me happens. Exactly. There becomes a grim acceptance that actually, do you know what? I've had a good innings. If we go down here. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, um, right. I've got to do the Hilton Quick Nine questions with you here. So we've got very quick questions. I've got to to do it. Quick answer. This is just very quick answer. First thing in your head. So we've got nine questions. This is the Hilton Quick Nine which we've been doing with all our interviewees. Mm. Some have been quicker than others. They're all, been... all asking the same. You ask them all the same questions. We've tweaked one of the questions here just specifically oh, for you, but yeah. some have been quick. There has been heavy editing involved for some players who either misunderstood the meaning of quick nine or just couldn't answer at all. But anyway, so here we go. The first question. First thing in your suitcase. Undies. Second question. Favourite club in the bag. Driver. Third. Where was your last holiday? Marbella. Question four. Favourite hole in golf? Postage stamp. Oh, lovely. In my own town. Uh, question five. Favourite course? Raw Melbourne. Nice. Uh, question six. One place on your bucket list that you haven't been? Croatia. Okay. Question seven. Best shot you've ever hit? Driver off the deck. 14. Paris National. Flushed it. Straight into the breeze. Eight feet. Binned it for eagle. Back to seven over. Uh, question eight, golfer or commentator, what would you rather be? Oh, the money they're playing for now, come on. Yeah, exactly. Get rid of the commentary. Yeah. Uncle Radar's getting the chief back out. <laughs> back off the deck. And question nine, finally, who would make up your dream four ball? It's going to be anybody dead or alive, dream four One ball. person. No, you've got three people to join you in a four ball. Seve, Jack Nicholson, and El McPherson. This is tremendous. I think people thought you were going to say Jack Nicholas, but no, no, you've gone the right way to Jack Nicholson and El McPherson and Seve. That is a good four ball. Some better at golf than others, I'm sure, but uh, that's going to be entertaining. So we're going to give you uh, a ticket to Dubrovnik and uh, say thank you very much indeed for joining us on Life on Tour, presented by Hilton Wayne Riley. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Life on Tour podcast, presented by Hilton. You can get in touch via Twitter and Instagram European Tour using the hashtag LifeOnTour or on Facebook. Subscribe now and if you enjoyed the show, feel free to rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts.